0: If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it and turn with me to the book of Philippians. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 3 and chapter 4. The plan is for us to finish out this sermon series in the book of Philippians today. If you're not used to using a Bible, scattered throughout the pews are some black pew Bibles. I have the same one up here, so I can tell you that Page 922 and 923, those are the page numbers at the top if you want to find Philippians there. And when I reference a chapter number, that's the larger bold print number on the page. And then there's small verse numbers, it just helps us move our way through the Bible and track along together. One of the goals is that hopefully you'll see that this message that I'm giving to you does not come from Phil's wisdom. But it is rooted in these words from Scripture. And so that's why, as a church, we gather each week to hear from God, to read His word, to have it taught and applied to us. And so we've been doing that for the last few weeks in the book of Philippians. We have a lot to cover. I think we should just dive in with the big idea and start working through the text today. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to the end of the book, chapter 4, verse 23, perfection is our prize. Partnership is our path. We'll take those in turn. First, we want to consider in chapter 3 how perfection is our prize. It's Paul's prize, but it's everybody's prize that would want to follow hard after Jesus Christ and become his disciple. That's first. Then secondly, we'll look at how partnership is the path. That if you have received the prize of Christ, then you are on the path and partner together with others. So let's start first with the first six verses where I'll start showing you that I think perfection is the standard that Paul, who's writing this letter, kind of assumes that God has for Paul and for you. So starting in verse 1, chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me. It's safe for you. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. What Paul's doing here is talking about his past before he became a Christian, and his past was of Jewish origin. He is talking about controversies that he makes note of in verse 2. Look out for, this is warning Philippian church. And if you remember from two weeks ago, the main thrust of this letter in terms of what he wants to encourage them to is to be faithful to the gospel. Faithful in the way they live out the implications of the gospel, but faithful to the message of the gospel, which he is addressing here in chapter 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. This is not kind words. These are severe words to try and explain the severity of the people who oftentimes Bible scholars and teachers call Judaizers. And essentially, it's a group of people that say, hey, you might have put your faith in Jesus, but you still need to become an ethnic, cultural Jew. You need to be circumcised if you've never been circumcised. You need to eat kosher. You need to follow the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. And if you don't do those things, well, then you are not going to be saved. You are going to be damned and judged. So we're talking about the difference between a gospel about Jesus alone and a gospel that says Jesus plus something else. And Paul is saying that anybody who says Jesus plus something else, watch out! They think that they're so pure and clean. In fact, they're the most unclean thing that they, I can think of. Dogs now, some of you are pet-friendly You've got dogs in your homes. We're not talking about how unclean they are with their shedding and slobbering and whatever else. All reasons why I don't own a dog. Love your dog. Not for me. But in this culture, and especially Jewish people, dogs would have been seen as like a really, really unwelcomed animal. Kind of like the stray cats that have some sort of disease. Like dogs were not pets in the home. So he's referring to an animal that he would kind of assume everybody's like, ugh, watch out for those people. And then he says, watch out for the evildoers, people who do things that they think is good, but it's actually bad. And look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is not the word for circumcision. This is a word for chopping stuff up. And he's referring to circumcision. Do you see that in verse 4 or 3? We are the circumcision, so mutilation of the flesh is the requirement for somebody to not just believe in Jesus, Jesus plus circumcise your children or yourself if you're an adult. You need to be circumcised, and if not, then you are not a true follower of the Bible. And that's essentially what he's starting to talk about here regarding Jesus and faith in Jesus plus some certain commands that mark you off as like, oh, You're in the in crowd. And Paul is saying if there was ever a guy that was in the in crowd, that had all the marks of who should have been the one that God would be acceptable of, it would be me. He said that I was, out of anybody, born from the best family, of the right tribe and lineage. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I have followed the commandments and the laws and been circumcised and done everything that you could imagine to a T. So if you were to check my life prior to meeting Jesus, you would have considered me blameless. And so what does he say next? After all of that, his resume, his pedigree as a Jewish man. Well, look at verse 8, 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had as a Jew, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not... And here's the key phrase I want you to key in on regarding our big idea. By finding Christ and being found in Christ, I do not have a righteousness of my own that comes from my law observance, my obedience to the Torah. Rather, my righteousness it comes through faith in Christ. It is a righteousness that comes from God and it is dependent upon faith. And so may I know him, the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This first section teaches us very clearly that Paul's perfect Pharisee-level blameless status was not enough. In fact, if you were to do a little comparison contrast, it would be, My righteousness before meeting Jesus compared to Jesus himself, this is dung, manure. The ESV translates it very soft, rubbish. The word here where he says rubbish, his original word is trash heap that would have been kind of excrement and all kinds of smells and grossness. He says all of my resume prior to meeting Jesus is nothing better than trash. When it's being compared to the righteousness of Jesus. Have you ever in life felt like, you know, I'm really good at something? Maybe you think, I'm really good at singing. Or I'm really good at speaking in front of people. I'm really good at playing a sport. I'm really good at writing. And then you go around somebody else that actually is really good at that. So I was in high school. I played basketball and football and was a three-sport athlete, ran track in the spring. I did really, really well in high school playing basketball. I ended up making it onto a college basketball team, and I can remember vividly the moment where I was the star team captain senior in high school, and then I show up as a freshman, and I got dominated day after day, running up and down the court, trying my very hardest and just barely keeping up. Oh, the humiliation to feel like I thought I was good. I'm not very good anymore. I played one-on-one with one of these seniors, and he just like dunked all over me, if anybody know what that means. I felt little. That experience, whether it's in music or sports or arts or just life. You ever been around someone, you're like, they seem like they have their life together. Mine's a mess. I interrupt this message. No one has their life together. So stop thinking that. Back to the message, but have you ever been around those situations where you just feel like, man, I thought I was good at something? That's what Paul experienced when he met Jesus Christ, and he said, the righteousness of Jesus compared to my blameless status is nothing. In fact, I'd do it all over again. I'd lose it all. Anything to know him and anything to be known by him, perfect righteousness. Did you see it in our passage, verses 8 to 11? It only comes through faith, not from obedience to the law, not through rituals, not through commands in the Bible, even the Ten Commandments, great list, faith in Christ alone. That is the prize of our aim in life, perfection. I wonder if any of you find that to be startling. Really? perfection? Not just good, not just pretty good. God demands that if we were to be in a relationship with him, we should be so holy, so separate, so different and distinct that in fact we might call it perfection. Well, yeah, I think that's exactly what we see throughout our passage, but we see explicitly it said in the next few verses. So keep reading with me. Look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, and he'll elaborate on what he means the this is, the resurrection of the dead and the becoming like Jesus. I have not made it. I have not arrived. I have not been, and look at our word. I have not been already made perfect, but I do press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind, I strain forward to what lies ahead, and I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. If you're mature in your thinking, then you understand that God's standard is perfection. But if you have not arrived, like Paul, then what's your hope? And he says, it's not that he has arrived, but that God has got him. Notice the way verse 12 says that I have not obtained the prize, but I have been obtained by Christ. He has made me his own. Man, there's there's almost like this irony in this passage really throughout. Clearly, there's no such thing, I think, from this verse alone. Verse 12, I haven't arrived. There's no sinless perfection. If you've ever been around a church and they've taught that sometimes Christians can be so filled with the Holy Spirit that they stop sinning and never sin again and then keep living on this earth right now, you should probably listen to them a lot less and then point them to passages like this and say, no, no, I don't think that the Bible teaches we become Sinless. We have not obtained the goal of resurrection from the dead and the new bodies that will be made new. But just as clearly as there's not sinless perfection, perfection is the goal. It is the prize. It's the upward call. It is Christ Himself. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe this is your first time in church in a long time. Again, I'm glad you're here. Welcome. We like to do this every week, study the Bible together and learn what it means to follow Jesus because he, in fact, is perfect. But make no mistake, God's word, not just here in Philippians, but repeatedly says that God's holy standard is that we would be holy just like him, which means, in very common language, your moral life, you're doing good and doing bad, it's not going to like work out at the end. The standard is God himself. It's not you and your other friends, it's not somebody else that you think, "Oh, well, I'm better than them." It's Jesus Christ. And if you ever spend a little bit of time reading about Jesus, he was the perfect human that walked this earth. And he is right now ascended into the heavens. And he stands at the feet of God, sits at the right hand of God. Whatever image we might use from scripture, He there represents all who would put their trust in his perfect work on their behalf. That's the only hope that you could have. And we're hoping that you'll see that right here in the Bible. This isn't some new idea. This is actually the old, old message of the gospel. And it's so encouraging to be reminded that Christ's perfect standard that we need to be measured up against can actually become our perfect righteousness. And therefore, we press on, we strive, we aim for perfection. We aim for Christ himself. But how do we not give up? You guys ever get discouraged? Like you try really hard to do something, like whether it was playing high school basketball and then graduating off into college, you're like, man, I just want to give up. I'm no good anymore. Are you ever just having your own personal life? Like, all right, I'm going to make a discipline where I'm going to start praying more consistently and then two weeks go by. Like, oh man, I completely got distracted. Netflix, come on, that thing, it's just sucking out my prayer life. Whatever that thing might be, none of us are perfect, but we should strive for perfection and the way that Paul speaks here encourages us when we're struggling. Notice the way he says that I do not look back. I press on. I keep striving forward. Forget what lies behind and strive for what lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call. So tomorrow morning, you wake up and you feel like, you know, I still feel a little bit like imperfect, a failure. I didn't speak with someone the way I should have. I was short in my tone the way I disciplined my children was kind of out of anger and exacerbating them explicitly like the scriptures say not to do. And you sin. What should you do with those failures? Well, just this last week, I heard a pastor friend of mine say it this way. Be brief, be blunt, and be gone. Be brief. Don't mull over your sin day after day after day. At some point, you've got to move on. So be brief. Deal with it. Be blunt. Be honest. Don't just keep hiding over, well, it's really not that bad. It probably is kind of bad. So be brief, be blunt, and then be gone. Move forward knowing that your righteousness is not dependent on your performance. Your salvation is not hanging in the balance as to how well you parented last night or this morning or right now. Your salvation is firmly rooted in Jesus Christ. He is the upward prize. John Bunyan is a former christian author pastor at one point he explained that he had an aha moment and i hope that maybe his words will be an aha moment for some of you he said that one day he was walking around in a field as you do when you don't have cars and planes and he was making his way along and he realized that he was very conscious like his conscience was being bothered and he feared that like not everything's right with me in my soul And then suddenly he said, a sentence fell upon me. And here was the sentence. John, your righteousness is in heaven. And then he explains. As I thought about this, I saw with the eyes of my soul that Jesus Christ is now at the Father's right hand. There, I say, yes, he is my righteousness. So then I went along my day. And whatever I was doing and wherever I was, My God could not say, John, where is your righteousness? Because my righteousness would always be right in front of him. I also saw, moreover, that it wasn't if I had a good frame of heart, doing well that day, or a bad frame of heart, that my righteousness did not get any better or any worse. My righteousness stayed the same yesterday, today, and forever, because my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. Do you see How Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3 are about you saying, yes, you have failed. Yes, you are not perfect. And no one I've ever met in this entire world has ever claimed, you know, actually, I figured out that perfect thing. That's me. I'm perfect. Do you want to be the first one? Or are you willing to admit that you have serious flaws and failures in your moral being? And deep down in your soul, you have guilt that you're dealing with. Well, Paul says you need to learn the practice of forgetting what's behind. Be brief, be blunt, and be gone. Look to Jesus Christ, who has perfectly obeyed every single one of the righteous requirements of the law. And he did it not just to show off. He did it out of love for you. He died on a cross and paid the penalty that you and I deserved for all of our failures. And then God saw that that death and rewarded him with a resurrection and said, Jesus Christ, you can be received as a human representative for every other human that lives on the planet if they would put their faith and trust in him. Have you done that? Do you need to be reminded afresh that your frame of mind today, this last week, your good record this last few months does not change your righteous status? It is always before the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. So we make perfection our prize because Jesus Christ is our prize, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father as our King, as our Lord. I found this illustration kind of helpful because there's this dynamic, like I mentioned. It's er, ironic. All right, so which is it? Do we press on, and do we strive, and do we work hard, or do we rest in the finished work of Jesus? Yes, exactly. Exactly. There is a kind of living and thinking and working that is restful. And then there's a kind of living and thinking and working in the Christian life that is like on a treadmill, getting nowhere, burning you out. If you don't know the difference in your mind, that's what church is about. Community. To be together and learn how to do Christian life where the kind of work I'm doing increasingly becomes striving discipline, pressing hard toward perfection in the power of the Holy Spirit resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So I want you to think of it like surfing. I've done this once. It did not go well. I did not get a big head at all, but I tried. And if you've ever surfed before, you know that it requires work. It requires effort. It requires balance. Some of those things I don't have. But it also requires something outside of you that actually gives you the power to go. The gospel of Jesus Christ and his righteousness is the wave. And you get caught up in the wave when you are surfing. And yes, you have a responsibility. The Bible does not say, well, rest in Jesus and sit around and do nothing and you're going to be really mature. You'll be perfect by tomorrow if you just pray a prayer. But I wonder if you realize that God has swept you up in his love and mercy like a wave, a wave of his grace, a wave of his perfect righteousness. And because of that wave, you can ride the path, the partnership of the Christian life, not on your own strength, not on your own might or power, but in the reliance upon Jesus Christ, continually looking up to him and not looking back. So I want to close out our time looking at the rest of chapter 3 and 4 with some marks as to whether or not are you on the path? What are some just clear key, key markers that you are in fact on the path riding the wave of Christ's perfect righteousness? Or are you kind of paddling along trying to create your own waves in the ocean? That would be fruitless, wouldn't it? So first, partnership is our path. I wanna first point out that the path and partnership to becoming a perfect person involves imitation. Verse 17, brothers join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And then he contrasts the example that he has of Paul and other godly Christians with those who have become enemies of the cross in verse 18. And then he explains that they will be judged but we will be saved. But I want to focus in on verse 17. Notice that he says, brothers, join in imitating me. The pathway of the Christian life involves looking around you and imitating people. Any of you ever regularly pray prayers of confession? Like as a discipline. Well, one of the reasons we have in our regular rhythm of corporate worship prayers of confession is so that you, if you've never done this before, looked at God's word, read it like we did in Philippians 3, then reflected on it, and then confessed your sins the way Becca led us today. I don't know, was I the only one that was just really encouraged by Becca's prayer today? It was just so helpful. I want to just suggest, imitate the way Becca read the scriptures, looked at her life, and shared publicly for all of us. We should confess our sins. That's what I mean by corporate worship, and the church is a way for us to imitate one another, and showing how we are relying upon Jesus Christ and centering ourselves around the gospel. My guess is the more you do that intentionally with people in this church, the more it's just going to happen naturally. You're just going to want to be more like them. If you just come to church on a Sunday and hear a sermon and leave and you don't know anybody and you're not rubbing shoulders with them on a regular basis, this will be stunted. It will become very, very difficult. It's like saying, yeah, I'm a surfer because I surfed that one time. Yeah. I got up one time on the board before falling. It takes practice. It takes imitation. So realize first and foremost that the path and partnership of the Christian life that is aiming toward perfection, it requires other people in community. And Paul points out and says, look, you can imitate me, not because of how great I am. I've already told you, my resume, it's nothing. But imitate me as I follow Jesus Christ. Second thing, The path and partnership of perfection here in the local church, it demands unity. Look at the way chapter four, verse one, and into the beginning of that first chapter. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Sentigi to agree in the Lord. Yet I ask you also, true companion, help these women. have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul, as I mentioned in a previous message, he is writing this letter in part to encourage them in gospel unity. Gospel unity means agreeing in the Lord. Do you all think that if we went around and we asked who you voted for in the election, who you plan to vote for in midterms, what you're doing with your bank account and your money, What you think about homeschooling, private schooling, and educating your children. That we would come to a unanimous decision of complete perfect agreement. A few small chuckles, right? That's a joke! No way! I don't even think I can agree with my wife on enough things to say something like that, right? But, do you know what we do agree upon here at Embassy Church? Do you know what unity is rooted in? Jesus is our Lord and our King and our Master. So the way for us to imitate one another is not in everything that we do in life, but it's to imitate those things that we do that reorient our life around the teaching and the gospel of Jesus. We will not grow toward perfection. We will not even be on the wave anymore. We will fall off. We will be off the race, not toward the prize, if we don't have unity together. Imitation and unity go hand in hand. How are we going to imitate one another if we're always disagreeing with each other on everything and making small minor matters big matters and intense conflict altogether? Brothers and sisters, I hope you see that throughout the New Testament, the need for people who come from different backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, it's being referenced earlier in chapter 3, different cultural understandings of things, it, it, it makes sparks fly, tension. You come from one part of the world, someone else comes from another part. Sometimes we have a hard time understanding each other. But can we agree together that we can put aside minor differences and make Jesus Christ the surpassing worth, the thing that is above all other things? Well, in this way, we would want to be able to be a local church together that agrees on, let's say, for example, our statement of faith or our church covenant. We've laid out not just one or two little pithy statements, but A lengthy explanation of here, this is what we agree upon as a church, about God, about his word, about marriage, about family, about all of these matters that we believe are essential for being a church together. Outside of those things, I think there's 18 statements on our statement of faith. After that, be charitable, be loving, be gracious, be patient. Agree in the Lord about the first importance matters in the Lord. Because the path of partnership in the gospel toward perfection requires, demands unity. It involves imitation. Third, it requires prayer. Notice the way that Paul then kind of explodes into verse 4 of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord again. I say it again. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. For the Lord is at hand. And do not be anxious about anything but in everything By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, there's a very specific practical thing that you can do. How do we grow individually? How do we grow collectively and unify ourselves? Well, pray in every situation. Prayers of petition, prayers of supplication. Those are just bigger words to say, ask God for help. If you need help with learning how to pray, don't just come to Sunday services and listen to people pray, but also gather throughout the week in smaller gatherings. And at the very, very bare minimum, read scripture and then pray over that passage and see how the scriptures can guide the things that you ask for. A lot of times we get frustrated in our prayer lives because we're asking things that don't flow from God's own heart. Why would a a loving father give to his child a a snake? Here. Here. Have a poisonous snake. No loving father does this. And as Jesus is teaching on prayer, he says, no, the father gives the child exactly what they need. And sometimes that child doesn't know what they need. So the more you saturate yourself in God's word, the more you're going to know what you need. And God will always answer your prayers based on the thing that you really needed. And if you knew what he knew, you would have asked for it in the first place. But you don't know what he knows. Fourth, The path and partnership of perfection comes through practice. I mentioned this already through imitation, but he mentions it again here in verses 8 and 9. That, brothers, you should think about whatever's true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. And if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, then I want you to think about these things. And it's the word not just to say, oh, think about it once, but mull over it. Set your mind on these qualities as being the thing that you're striving for when we talk about mature perfection. And then in verse nine, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, notice imitation again, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Have you heard the old saying that if you're not putting together a plan, then you're planning to fail? And so if you don't have a plan for practicing the Christian life and are intentional about how to read scripture, study the Bible, be in community, and you're just kind of floating along, coasting, drifting, it's going to really be a struggle. And I would encourage you to think about this message as a way to help set you on the right path of partnership in the gospel. Not because, previous point of the sermon, not because your whole salvation is dependent on how well you're doing with your practices but because you get the amazing privilege and honor to be swept up in God's love and grace. So do it well. Do it with all of your might. Like Paul is saying, I press on. I am laboring. I'm striving. This is my one main ambition in life. Everything else worthless compared to knowing Jesus. And I know there's some of you that believe this with all of your heart. And some of you, you want to get there. So spend time around them, imitating them, and practicing the things that they say, hey, here's something that's helped me. You should do this. Not because you're not going to go to heaven, not because God's going to punish you, and because it's good, it's helpful. Fifth and finally, we've talked about how the path of partnership in the gospel toward perfection and being united with Jesus in our new resurrected bodies it involves imitation, it demands unity, it requires prayer, it comes through continual repeated practice. The last section of the letter is Paul's thank you. and I mentioned this at the beginning of this sermon series and notice the way he concludes. The path and partnership of perfection is supplied by God's abundant generosity, his grace. Look at these verses in 10 to 20 and just be encouraged as I read them to you. That Paul is reminding us of how generous our God is and that you can be confident in his ability to provide everything you need to do everything that I just encouraged you to do. He's not asking you to do something that he hasn't already done and he's not asking you to do something that he wouldn't supply all that you need to do it. Philippians four ten to 20. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every, in every, any circumstance, I have learned the secret of pl- facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even at Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. These verses are what I mentioned last week as coffee cup verses, right? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He's going to supply all of my needs because of his glorious riches. Ooh, I need a Lamborghini. I need a big house. I need to get into this college. Well, do you? So many different gyms that I've worked out at, you know, been around Christian athletes. I can do all things to him so I can bench press 500 pounds. No, that's not what this Bible passage is about at all. If you're thinking, well, I could go marry so-and-so or I could get this job promotion or all of these different circumstantial things that we think of in our life, I could do it because God will give me the strength. The Bible passage, if you read it, upon further review, says even when you don't get it, in fact, those are the moments that are going to be really tough I could have nothing. I could not get the job promotion. I could lose the job. I could not know if my future is secure. I could not have the person that I'm going to get married to, but I am content. That's the power and strength that he's referring to. And I can do all of those things, the hard things especially. But some of us in this room, we've actually achieved some successes. And I remember when I was studying this, John Calvin in his commentary says, a lot of people understand that they need God's help when they're weak. How many of you are doing well at depending upon God's strength when you're prosperous? When you did get the promotion? When you did get that marriage that you were hoping for? When you did get all those children? Et cetera, et cetera. Are you doing those things in the strength that God supplies richly and abundantly? Well, a lot of us don't handle the test of prosperity that well. And living in a prosperous nation... By all estimations, one of the wealthiest nations that's ever existed. Oh, I wonder how many of us need to hear that other side of it, too. Whether well-fed, with a kitchen full of food, cabinets full, scarcity of other supplies, and we can go to Costco and fill up our homes and pantries. Or whether we have nothing to eat six months from now. I can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives me the strength because he will richly supply all that I need. Really, the way that we can sum up everything that we've said is that the demand for perfection, the requirement for perfection, the path of the Christian life, well haven't you seen time and time again, it's a reliance and dependence upon God on Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness, on Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross, on Jesus Christ's calling you and sweeping you up in the wave of his love. None of you are here, ultimately, because of you. Like, alive, number one, but here, in this room, right now, is it because of how morally superior you are to your neighbors that didn't wake up and go to church today? Or is it because of God's grace, his kindness, his love, his mercy, for one reason or another, he has called you. As Paul said earlier in Philippians chapter 3, I have not have attained perfection, but I press on. Why? Because Christ has made me his own. You see, we might all have goals and ambitions, and they may be good goals, and some of you in here, your goal is to know Jesus Christ more than anything else in the world. I know, I've talked to you. I'm thankful that we're at a church where people like, no, that is my goal. I want to know Christ, like Paul says. I don't care about a job. I don't care about money. I don't care about all those other things that the world's after. I want Jesus. Amen. But did you know that he wants you? Did you know that Paul is talking about how you are written in a book of life that was written before you were ever born? Did you know that Paul is talking about how we can only hold true to what we have already attained? hold true to what we've already received like how do we hold on to something that we already received it is that the gospel gives us all that we need in Jesus Christ all that you will need from the beginning the middle and the end and if you think that the standard is not perfection then you are falling so short not just of God's holy standard but of your end goal which is to be made new to join Jesus Christ in his resurrection To be given a whole new human body, and I mean literally a human body that's better than the one you have now, that's able to be morally just like Jesus, imitating him for all of eternity. That's why our hope needs to be on the prize and not on these lesser ambitions. And I pray and hope that this sermon will be an encouragement to all of you to put your trust in God's ability to supply all that you need today for this next hour, this week, This next summer, I pray that he will richly give you the confidence in his grace and generosity. Don't you just love that line in Romans chapter 8? If he didn't withhold his most precious thing that he had, his son, how will he not graciously, generously give you all that you need? Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the perfect, righteous record. The one that Jesus Christ has obeyed. Every demand of God's law. Perfectly fulfilled. Every expectation. He's the basketball player that never missed a shot. Not one. Perfect. Mature. Complete. There is one, your son Jesus, that came into this earth out of his grace and his love and his humility and not only lived a perfect life but did it for us so we could be known by him. Not just so we could know him but so that we could be known by him and we pray in his name. We pray on his merits. We pray because of the power of his blood and we ask that the Holy Spirit would strengthen and build up this church. We pray for anybody here that's come into this church gathering and they've had a very low view of you, God. I pray that they'd be corrected, reminded that you are the supreme, holy God and that you demand perfection. But that in your kindness, you are not keeping from us the very thing that you demand. You provide all that we need. That perfection is found in Jesus Christ and it's a gift of your grace. So I pray that we would receive it today either for the very first time, for those of us that don't know you well, or for the millionth time, the reminder of your great love for us sinners. And help us this week, and this year, and this summer, to spend our days pressing forward, not looking behind, not dwelling on the past. Give us the ability to be brief and blunt, and be gone with our sins and failures. May there be new creatures forming, new marriages, new friendships, new relationships, new practices, new ways of going about prayer, unity that's formed. People that probably wouldn't hang out together do hang out because of their agreement in the Lord Jesus. God, do this in so much more than all we could ever ask or imagine. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.